What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following is brought to you by the PLD Projects Network. It's me. It's me. It's PLD. The following is brought to you by the PLD Projects Network. It's me. It's me. It's PLD. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Crown Jewels. I'm your host, PLD, on the PLD Projects Network. And if this is your first time to Crown Jewels, you have come at a most momentous occasion. Uh, Two certain reasons why this is a momentous occasion. A, we're going to have a new segment today, which I'm excited to debut. And B, well, you have come across the podcast at a time where, chronologically speaking, we have reached... The first really big international hit for the band, the song that kind of changed everything as far as the band's outlook goes. And of course, I'm talking about Killer Queen. We've had some good songs in the past. We've had some even known songs. Keep Yourself Alive is a pretty known song. Seven Seas of Rye was a big hit for the band in the UK. But Killer Queen is kind of where it all turned around. As far as the new segment is concerned, again, if you've been here before, you know that we take a look at the song in question, Today Killer Queen. We look at the background of it. We look at the alternate versions of it, try to decide which is the best or crown jewel version of the track before we add it to a playlist of my creation. And then we also rank the song and rate it and talk about it some more. Uh, but this is a new age, a new era. I've always done this podcast as a solo host, but I kind of miss the interaction with people. I love interacting with people, talking about various things, whether they be movies or, in this case, music. Uh, I had a conversation with a gentleman named John Lestrina, who some of you know, my listeners definitely know, a very good friend of the, of the podcast, as well as a patron of mine and a member of the Action Army, if you are a movie and trivia schmodown person or an action industries person. Uh, we talked about our love of music. He has listened to the podcast since the get-go, loves talking about Queen, loves talking about his bands as well. I want to try to find a way to get more interaction. However, this podcast doesn't really lend itself to having a two-man conversation. It's much more of an instructive uh, talking to the audience, one-on-one, so to speak. So what to do? Well, I'm going to compromise. I'm going to have our normal show, but the new segment I introduce, which will be towards the end of the show, before I give Killer Queen a number rating, 
I'm going to have a segment where I introduce John Lestrina to the show, and we have a conversation, a little short conversation where we talk about musical background, their background with Queen, and what they think of the song. He chose Killer Queen as a song he wanted to make his first appearance on, so I was happy to oblige him. But that is coming up soon. But before that, let's get into today's episode about Killer Queen. Written by Freddie Mercury, you feature Freddie on lead vocals, backing vocals, piano, jangle piano, and of course, finger snaps, uh, Brian May on the guitar, and and the backing vocals, John Deacon on bass, Roger Taylor is on drums, triangle, Aeolian chimes, and backing vocals. <laughs> Aeolian chimes, yes. Uh, now, I, might, I did mention this was a first big international hit. In the UK, it climbed all the way up to number two, where the US, it hit number 12. It did hit some other charges. The Australia chart was at number 23, Netherlands number three, Japan number 27. Uh, it's a great track. It's a first real hit can be heard on class radio even today um it's definitely much more of a lighter track than the band had really done so far uh, it was played live through about 1985 but never in full form it was always one of the songs the band put in the medley uh it was, it was retired after 1985 it was not brought back until adam lambert brought it back during the queen and adam lambert gigs as adam lambert is someone who could handle the camp a little bit better than someone like a paul rogers or anyone else at the freddie mercury tribute concert so we'll be talking about those today we don't have many alternative versions there's no alternative studio versions to talk to. We do have a bunch of live versions we will listen to and chat about, so let's get into that. But before we listen to the studio effort, I, of course, have a few notes and quotes. Again, like I mentioned, the first big international hit was issued as a double A-side, which means, of course, actually two singles at once. They're both on the A-side. The song called Flick of the Wrist, which we will get to. Uh, the quick note I have is this is the song that inspired the name of the villain in the Queen musical We Will Rock You, which we will talk about at a later time. It was a West End smash, uh, as well as did some touring in the U.S. as well. Uh, very fun show. Some didn't like it because it's a little bit uh, vapid, but I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, I do have a couple of quotes I wanted to read you, two from Freddie and a couple from Brian as well. From Freddie in 1974 to Melody Maker, Freddie said, Well, Killer Queen I wrote in one night. I'm not being conceited or anything, but it just fell into place. Certain songs do. Now the March of the Black Queen, that took ages. I had to give it everything to be self-indulgent or whatever. But with Killer Queen, I scribbled down the words in the dark one Saturday night, and the next morning I got them all together and I worked all day Sunday. That was it. I got it. It gelled. It was great. He followed that up with an interview from the, with the NME and said, People are used to hard rock energy music from Queen. Yet with this single, you almost expect Noel Coward to sing it. It was one of those bowler hat, black suspender numbers. Not that Noel Coward would wear that. It's about a high-class call girl. Try to say that classy people can be whores as well. That's what this song is about, but I prefer people to put their own interpretation upon it, to read what they like into it. And, of course, that's something you'll hear Freddie say quite often. He's very, very reticent to discuss lyrics, to discuss themes. He much prefer the audience to figure it out for themselves or have their own interpretation. Never want to slight them for having their own interpretation or spin on things. Now, Brian May, on the other hand, did have a little hesitation about the song. As he tells a uh, guitar for the practicing musician in 1993, when we put out Killer Queen, everybody thought that it was the most commercial. I was worried that people would put us in a category where they thought we were doing something light. Sheer Heart Attack was, in my mind, quite heavy and dirty. And Killer Queen was the lightest and cleanest track, and I was worried about putting it out. When I heard it on the radio, I thought, it's a well-made record, and I'm proud of it, so it doesn't really matter. Plus, it was a hit. So fuck it. A hit is a hit is a hit. <laughs> uh, one last quote I do have from Brian May is about what I mentioned before earlier in the Brighton Rock uh, segment or Brighton Rock episode, rather, where Brian had been sick after Queen's first American tour and that he was sitting around for a long time that Freddie, Brian, Freddie Roger and John built up a lot of sheer heart attack without him. And he had to come in towards the end to really make his own contributions. 
To quote Brian, the first time I heard Freddie playing that song, I was lying in my room in Brockfield Studios, feeling very sick. After Queen's first American tour, I had hepatitis, and then I had a very bad stomach problem that I had to be operated on. So I remember just lying there, hearing Freddie play this really great song and feeling sad because I thought, I can't even get out of bed to participate in this. Maybe the group will have to go on without me. No one could figure out what was wrong with me. But then I did go to the hospital, and I got fixed up, thank God. When I came out again, we were able to finish off Killer Queen. They left some space for me, and I did the solo. I had strong feelings about one of the harmony bits in the chorus, so we had another go at that, too. So what had happened to Brian? Well, Brian got immunized in 1974 for the best trip to Australia. Unfortunately, he contracted gangrene from a dirty needle, and there was talk of his right arm being amputated, scarily enough. He also contracted hepatitis at that point. Um, later on in tour with Moth the Hoople in May of 1974, he collapsed after a show in New York when he thought it was just exhaustion. The rest of the band thought it was food poisoning. But when he got to Boston, his skin and his eyes turned yellow. A doctor called said it was hepatitis. Brian May was basically forced to go home with help from Freddie, John, and Rogers. Brian could barely stand. And Brian was ordered to take six weeks of bed rest, which is when Freddie, Roger, and John started to work on sheer heart attack. Brian got back about July of 1974, June and July. Then in August, he collapsed again while recording his heart attack. He was taken to King's College Hospital. That's where he was diagnosed with a duodenal ulcer. He was taken in for surgery and ordered another long bed rest. But of course, the band was not going to go out without him. Brian's guitar is part of the signature sound. By about October, he did recover for the most part. He was a little exhausted, uh, but he did finish up the album, and that's where we stand. So now pause me, go to the description, click on the studio version of Killer Queen, and we'll come back and talk about it. She's a killer queen. And there you have it, the studio version of Killer Queen. What a great track, huh? What a great track. Uh, starts off with nice like finger snaps and rhythmic piano. Uh, the preciseness of this song is something that Queen will definitely work on as they get older and get more into Night at the Opera, Day at the Race, and things of that nature. They had always been very much a dense, thick sound, but this was a very precise vocal behind Freddie's gorgeous, uh, light and clean delivery. A lot of falsetto-y, airy. I can see why Brian thought this was going to be light. This is a lot more of a poppy-type vocal than the band's hard rock roots, uh, but it does work. I love the ascending try uh, at that point. It's because it's also countermanded by the end when it ends with the descending Try, I want to try at the end. Uh, I love the differences between them and the verses. Makes for a different sound. I love that. Roger, the second verse, I love adds some percussive flourishes, a little little, uh, drum fill, the drum roll there. Brian adds some harmonics. But I really want to point out John's bass in the second verse, which shows what a hidden weapon he is. Quite often, I'll say it all the time, a lot of times bassists will revert to doing just like the bottom note and kind of plod along. John always tends to add little flourishes here and there, never very flashy. You almost don't even notice it unless you're listening for it. When you do hear it, you kind of notice what it does for the song, the movement it gives the song. That's a very powerful thing he does. He's very much a very hidden weapon in the band. Um, now we get to Brian Solo. It's one of his personal faves. It's very subtle, not flashy at all, but it does fit the song very well. He loves playing with the melody, not quite doing what Freddie sang. And yet it's reminiscent enough of the melody so that it fits. Uh, some great back and forth with the harmonizing. It's it's a great track overall. Again, it, it really showcases where the band is at the time and where they could go. It doesn't pigeonhole them. You can have I mean, it's the same album that has Stone Cold Crazy on it. 
Um, but I do love that this is the first real signature of where the band could be. They've had hints of it before, obviously. You had some songs like My Fairy King, which are piano-driven. You had some like softer songs like Someday, One Day. But this was definitely a, a touch different from what they were going to be doing um, so far and what they were going to be doing for the future. So that's where we, we stand with the studio version. Now let's get into those live versions. Again, we have a bunch of different live versions that are all from Medley's. We have... F- Five different medley versions that the band performed in official release. We've got the Rainbow, 1974, Hammersmith, 1975, Earl's Court from 1977, which is released as a bonus uh, track at one point. We've got Live Killers, and we got Rock Montreal from 1981. And then beyond that, we do get a Queen plus Adam Lambert rendition. But we're going to start off with the Live of the Rainbow, 1974. So go back to the description, click on Live of the Rainbow, watch it, and come back, and we'll talk about it. She keeps them away in a pretty cabin. And there you have it. If you couldn't guess, the band was going to segue into March of the Black Queen. Uh, the band's having fun there with this one right away. There's barely audible fingers now, so they're playing to the audience, as you can see from the video version. Roger obviously handling that percussively so it can be heard. Uh, Freddie delivers a very clean live vocal here, but as usual, he tends to more stay away from the falsetto and leave some of the higher notes in the choir portions to Roger. Uh, backing vocals are very strong here. Uh, the band definitely are known for their great backing vocals, but they, they felt especially strong when they used them. Interestingly enough, during the want to try part freddie keeps that solo interestingly enough uh quickly of course the band just skips the second verse because randy brian made a solo a little fragmented solo a little bit not quite the full version for segueing back into march of the black queen so it's kind of an in and out version which is why it's hard to say that i've ever put this above the studio version because it's just so so uh short comparatively but honestly that's the case for all of these live versions so without further ado let's just move on to the next one live at hammersmith 1975 go to the description click that link we'll be back for more She keeps so there you have it. Very similar performance to the Rainbow of 1974. They do add the second verse this time, which makes sense. In uh, November of 1974, the song had only been out for a little bit, where it hadn't made quite the impact it would make within a year's time. Uh, but it feels very similar, uh, maybe a little more urgent sounding. Freddie seems a little more uh, faster paced with it a little bit. Uh, but the clean live vocal, again, avoiding the falsetto at this point. You got Freddie at the piano the whole time playing a nice rhythmic piece. As Brian Solo feels very, very, very precise. I do like that quite a bit. As it segues again into March of the Black Queen. Very nice version, though. I do like this one a lot. But let's see what a little more time does. Earl's Court, June of 1977. Still a part of the medley. Go to that description, click that link, and we'll come back and talk about it. She keeps and there you have it, live from Earl's Court. Gotta love that Harlequin out at Freddie Wears. It's so uh, clashing in color, but so very, very much Freddie. Um, interestingly enough, this is a, the song that begins the medley now at this point. Uh, previously, the Rainbow and Hammersmith the band had segued into it from a different song before, but perhaps by this point, it was such a big hit that they wanted to showcase it as the beginning part of the medley. This does feel a little closer to the rainbow as far as a tempo and, and urgency goes. Uh, Roger's backing vocals are a little stronger in this one, a little overpowering compared to Brian's, but I'm actually okay with that. Roger has a much more powerful voice than Brian. I love Brian's vocals on some quieter, folksier songs, but Roger's vocals are, to me, the secret sauce of Queen. 
Uh, Brian does get a little more aggressive during the second verse with some of his licks. They're a little, a little dirtier, a little earthier. Maybe he wanted to dirty it up a smidge comparatively, if you think back to that quote. Um, but it's a very playful solo. I also love where they have the video shot of John hitting the triangle for that one moment during the solo. I just love that. Uh, the band does prepare to segue this time into good old-fashioned Loverboy, which we have not gotten to yet in our chronology, but we will. All right, let's move on to the, well, the first chronologically released live version of the song, back when Queen released their first live album ever back in 1979, double album called Live Killers. This is from that double album, recorded in Frankfurt, February of 1979. This is Killer Queen from Live Killers. Again, click that and that link in the description and come back. We'll talk about it some more. And there you have it for Live Killers. Um, I have to say, right off the bat, Roger specifically, the band really as a whole, Roger was very vocal about it, never happy with the mix of Live Killers, and to this day kind of like discards it in a way. It's kind of telling, I think, that the band has never reissued this despite all the anniversaries and reissuing of the studio CDs. There is plans in progress potentially for a Live Killers box set, but I kind of have the feeling that if we get a Live Killers box set, there's going to be a lot done to the original album, maybe a new, entirely new remix and hopefully it'll take some of the omitted songs that ever made it onto Live Killers and add those back in. But that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about Killer Queen itself. The mix is not great. I don't love the mix on this. It's a little muddier. Uh, Freddie's voice is solid but I don't feel it's as crisp as the earlier tracks and I'm not sure if that's as earlier live versions, I should say. I'm not sure if that has to do with the mixing or not. Um, Brian's solo is really good, though. I do think Brian's solo might be one of his best. It's very precise, very clear, very crisp. Um, and then the band does, again, much like the previous version, goes into a different song. This time it's going into Bicycle Race. Again, we haven't gotten to that one yet, but you probably have heard of that one. Overall, decent version, decent version, but uh, let's not stop yet. we got a couple more to go. One more queen, then one more, then a queen and I'm Lambert. Then I will get into my talk with John Lestrina before I come back from that and issue my decision on what the crown jewel is for Killer Queen. Let's move on now. Queen Rock Montreal 1981. One of the best releases the band has ever done. Let's see what that version of Killer Queen sounds like. Click on the description, link in the description. Come back for more. There it is, live in 1981. Queen Rock Montreal with Killer Queen. Again, it begins the medley, but Freddie, that is peak performance at this point. He really knows how to control the crowd. You see him playing with the audience right from the get-go. The band plays along. We can get a quip of John starting the under pressure right before Freddie tells him to fuck off. Uh, it's very fun, very playful version of the song. And Freddie is very playful with his vocals, going in different directions with it, trying some different uh, melody styles with it. He was very strong throughout this whole gig, really. I don't know if it was because he knew the cameras were on the recording for a video cassette back in the day or before it became a live CD and Blu-ray. Either way, it was a very strong vocal performance for him, not only in this song, but in the rest of the gig. Uh, the backing vocals are probably the best since the studio version. They're very strong, very clear, very crisp. You know, if they don't uh, quite do all the same things, some of the backing vocals are left to Freddie on his own. Um, but I want to point out definitely John's bass during this version. Uh, it's very distinct and very playful. He plays around a lot, and you, you, you hear it a little more. I don't know if it's the, the mix is just better. Um, either way, I love hearing what he does, even during Brian's solo. 
low he's tweaking a little bit here and there. I love it. I like it great. Uh, actually, it's funny. At one point, you even see John singing. Now, that's a, an urban legend. John always had a mic during gigs, but he always said he couldn't sing. He never recorded vocals for, for uh, any of the Queen albums. Uh, he mimed it during videos. Uh, like during the Bohemian Rhapsody section, he mimed singing there because it just looked better artistically speaking. I kind of feel that was the same thing he did in concerts. He kind of like just wanted to have an, a mic there. and But supposedly, the mic was just turned off, and he was just doing it actively to, to look like the whole band was singing, even if he wasn't singing a note. Although, every once in a while, I have to say, if a bootleg, there's bootlegs that came out where you might hear an odd note that didn't sound like Freddie Bryant or Roger. So it's quite possible that a mic was turned on every once in a bit. Who knows? I don't really care either way. I don't think the band was really trying to hide something or fake it. Obviously, the band was uh, Freddie, Brian, and Roger were very much so singing full on in this, as well as all of the, all of their gigs. Um, but it's just a little fun moment for me. Um, obviously, the end here that we get to segue from the solo. It's going into this time. It's going to be going into "I'm in Love with My Car." which we haven't gotten to, but a very famous song, especially after the movie Bohemian Rhapsody came out. Um, but that is the last officially released live version we're going to listen to today from Queen. Now we go on to Queen Plus. We do have one Queen Plus, Queen Plus Adam Lambert. Uh, in their live in Japan album they recorded from Tokyo in 2014, Adam Lambert gets to try his version of Killer Queen. One last time, click on that link in the description and come back and we'll see if Adam measures up. Let them eat cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. And there you have it, Queen Plus Adam Lambert. Now, I mentioned that the band had retired it after 1985 and never really tried to do anything with it with the Freddie Mercury tribute concert or with Paul Rogers, who obviously not the style of song Paul Rogers would be doing. But Adam brings a playfulness to it, which the band knew that they could finally tackle it again. And at this point, they had gotten really back into playing some of their earlier hits as they uh, went around the world again. Obviously, it's interesting that some fans, some fans from Queen, uh, really don't like Adam for various reasons. One of the one of the arguments they had against him was that he was too over the top, too campy, which to me seems like a silly argument when you think that Freddie Mercury was pretty over the top and campy. Um, but I will say, I think the argument that they're trying to make, which they're not very good at making, is that Adam tends to veer it more off into a Broadway show era instead of rock and roll. Well, I think that Freddie kind of straddled that line between show tunes and rock and roll a little bit better. Adam tends to go more in the other direction of, of Broadway show tunes. Um, and obviously, part of that is because Freddie had to play the instruments. Freddie played piano during a lot of it. As you saw during the live clips from all the other concerts, Freddie played the piano during that. Now, Freddie didn't love playing the piano live. He liked to be able to play with the audience. As it gets further and further on in the career, the band does hire a keyboardist that Freddie can step away from the piano a little bit more. Uh, by this time, Spike Edney, who had been with the band since 1984, is now the musical director of a lot of what Queen does, as far as the rest of the band goes, as far as, like, besides Brian and Roger, I should say. Uh, Spike is playing the piano, which allows Adam to be playful. He has this ridiculous purple couch that he lounges on and plays with it. Um, as far as the song itself, Adam's got the voice. He's always had the voice. He does follow Freddie's live vocal performances pretty well. A little higher, a little crisper. Uh, not quite as uh, as earthy and soulful as I'd like, but decently and decent enough. Um, I do love Brian's solo. It's very playful. After 35 years, it doesn't make sense that he wants to try a little bit more with it. Uh, they do end... The medley with this this time, instead of beginning or the, this is the first time I really think they ended the medley with it, um, but they don't 
really finish the song. We still end the song after the solo and then allows Adam to go talk to the audience at this time where he starts thanking them for allowing him to step into the shoes of Freddie Mercury, so to speak. Always very respectful, Adam was. I have no doubt that he's one of the more respectful people who ever could have stepped into the slot of Freddie Mercury's shoes, rather. Um, I do think that people were a little overly harsh on him, and if you've ever gone to see a show with him, uh, you know you're not getting Freddie Mercury, you're not getting Queen necessarily, but you are getting a good time and a good fun time. and get to see Brian Rodgers, so I don't know what the argument really is. I guess they're going to be coming around possibly for one more tour in the U.S. next year, potentially, so I will be there if it's going to be the last time. Uh, Adam's a very respectful singer, and he's got a vocal, he's got a set of vocal cords on him, I'm not going to lie. It might not be Freddie, but it's not too bad. Well, all right, we got to get a crown jewel out of these tracks, and we also got to rate them. But before we do that, it's time for our new segment. Without further ado, let me turn it over to, well, myself and John Lestrina. She's a killer queen. John Lestrina, welcome to Crown Jewels. Hello, Mr. Paul. Thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to invite myself on uh, here. It's very, very gentlemanly of you. I'm glad to be here. Very excited to be here. And uh, not only that, but you are the first, the very first guest on Crown Jewels. So you really are the, the king of the guests of Crown Jewels. It's very exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> so first, let's talk about uh, your, I mean, obviously it's a podcast about Queen. We all know that. But let's get into your musical, your general musical background. Like, when did you first, like when you were young, when did you first discover like how much you were actually into music? What was that moment where you were like, I love this band or I love this artist, I love this song and go from there? Yeah, I, I guess it's sort of. Growing up with two older sisters and older brother, you sort of kind of listen to what they have, what they've gotten, and sort of more, I guess, gravitating to their brother, um, of course, his tastes. Um, a lot of like heavy metal, some punk rock, and then I was like, you know, after you know hearing you know Metallica and like shit, like you know, that there's some good stuff, and then listen to more stuff, and then gravitating more. So it's like you know Pink Floyd, Megadeth, mm. Zeppelin, uh, ACDC, Sabbath. Um, Ozzy's side project, you know, Dio, um, and, and then, you know, uh, Queen, I mean, hearing, you know, on the radio and then my, and they're used to the Mighty Ducks and like, and I remember, you know, because I mean, back then we didn't have internet, what it was, there wasn't necessarily YouTube, just look up, you sort of hear on the radio or maybe when I get a little older, legally, maybe. Legally, maybe legally obtaining some stuff. Um, anyway, that's a different, different, different podcast, different time. <laughs> going into you know a, a music store and just digging through and finding stuff, and then I think one of the first you can't see, they can't see it, but you can see it. Uh, Queen Live uh, was uh, the first one of the first live concert DVDs I purchased with my own money. Good one. Um, so and then just a great, great performance, and but it's just sort of just. Man, these guys are really killer at performing live, writing songs, and writing catchy, cool arena rock, fun, passionate songs. And I guess the rest is history, as yeah. they say. That's a little fun fact. I don't know if I ever said this on the show or not, but uh, Live at Wembley was my first CD purchase because mm-hmm. I had cassettes for a while. My father, like, I was in, what was it, 92? I think it came out in 92. So I was like right around the high school age, and I, 
I got a new CD player for Christmas, I think. My father said, all right, we'll take you to the CD store. You can get like a CD or two because you don't have any. Yeah, I'm like, okay, cool. So I went and was like, well, this one's a double CD, so it's more expensive. So I'll have him buy me that oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> so I can get the other one. I get the single ones later on myself. So oh, yeah, yeah. It was like Kiss Double Platinum or exactly. whatever it was. I have that one. So it's like, oh, yeah, this is double exactly. album. Let's go. Exactly. It's like the 1499 or the 2399. You can buy me the bigger one. We'll, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I like that where you come from because, like, one of my favorite things about Queen is that it does touch all genres, really. Like, uh, like one of their big strengths that it really goes in a lot of different directions from pop, uh, opera, classic rock. It goes into heavy metal. Obviously, Metallica is very influenced by Queen in some areas. Um, and, but like, so I love seeing where people come from. You came from the heavy metal side, uh, Metallica, the Dio. Uh, so really, the Brian May side of Queen is what I, uh, how I like yeah. to put it in a way, because uh, Brian was definitely the heaviest member of the of the band as far as as far as music goes. Um, so today you chose Killer Queen. Uh, you gave me a couple of songs to go from. You threw Brighton Rock out there. We did that obviously last week. Um, and you threw another one, Bites Dust, which I might have you come back for. It's a little ways away. We're not quite near that yet, but we'll, we'll get there someday. It's down the, it's down the road, yeah. <laughs> down the road. Um, but this is the one you said, oh yeah, Killer Queen would be a great one to jump on. So I'm kind of curious, what made you jump on Killer Queen? Yeah, it's interesting because for some reason, this is my favorite Queen song. I mean, I love Hammer to Fall. Again, the heavier stuff, Hammer to Fall, very heavy song, Brighton Rock, very heavy. Obviously, another one, Vice of Dust, Bohemian. There, I mean, there's so many good ones. Uh, right. Seven Seas of the Rye. Yeah. Uh, Radio Gaga is a good one, too. Uh, but there's just, I, I think this is the song that made me realize that Freddie Mercury is probably my favorite. I Not probably, is my all, my number one favorite vocalist singer just out of everybody. And, oh. and then that's all. And then like, there's like goes down just like, you know, more rock guys. Like, I mean, I like Lane Staley and I, is also too, like one of my favorite vocalists, but just his voice, his range is just amazing. And then too, obviously playing uh, the keys on this one too. Yeah. Uh, just I, whenever it comes, I, it comes on the radio. Yeah. It gets a lot of airplay time too, which is great. Um, it just, I don't know. It just gets me kind of going. Like I just love just kind of humming to it. Yeah. Uh, just the you know the, the great guitar parts too. The the licks and the solos from Brian May are, are just really really great. Just very easy listening, for lack of a better term. Right. But it's just it's a very just fun. Even I mean the subject matter is, is you. We know what it is. Uh, this is a really cool, really fun song to listen to. High class call. Yeah. Um, it's actually funny because when you, I did have to say, when you jumped on, you said Killer Queen. I was a little, I don't know if surprise is the right word, word but given your background, given what I knew you like, how you love the heavy metal stuff and everything else, kind of, oh, it was interesting that you chose that. Um, and it's funny because yeah, Brian it's May. Weird, yeah. yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Brian had the same kind of thought. I think I remember when Brian, I'm not sure what I've said or not because I'll, I'll, here's a little behind the scenes fact. I'm recording this a couple weeks before I'm actually recording the episode so i i said this already forgive me you'll hear it a little bit again um but i like that brian may was actually a little nervous about putting putting this out as a single because it is such a much easier like you said easier listening they kind of kind of gem they thought it might be sounding too pop they might lose their audience but it really ended up gaining them a whole new audience and the rock and roll crew stayed with them throughout because they had a bunch of different rock songs on this that record anyway you had bright and rock yeah. you had stone cold crazy <clears throat> one of the heaviest songs they've done um so and now i'm here another single they did from this album another great rock and tune um but this is the one that got them big this is their first really big international hit 
Um, and it's exactly what you said. It's a great Freddie piece. Um, what I love about it too is you mentioned Brian's guitar licks on this. I want to talk about them. Um, I know that he was Brian was sick for a lot of sheer heart attack. Um, I don't know if you knew that the behind the scenes story on that. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit, he, yeah. Because yeah, he was behind. He was sick, and he, he was in the hospital for a while after after he contact contracted like hepatitis in, in America during his tour. And so he did a lot of sheer heart attack without him, and he got kind of nervous that they were going to try to replace him. Uh, he didn't really have to worry about that. How are you going to replace Brian May, right? <laughs> but <laughs> it's hard to yeah, a guitar player, yeah, a, a drummer and a bass player, yeah, you can yeah. <laughs> but Brian had to come back and wanted to add those licks like as much as he could. And he kind of came back and just added these uh, in, indescribable, really melodious licks. And he, I think this song is probably the key. One of the key songs and key examples of what Brian May says when he says he likes to write solos that are really melodies themselves and, and counterpoints to the melody. Like he, he instead of like a lot of guitar players, and I'm not knocking them, it's fine. They like to noodle a lot to try to play their solos like as fast as they can, or they try to mm-hmm. do a lot of things. Brian always likes to add a sec. It's almost like a second singer. The guitar is almost like a second singer there. He's not the flashiest and fastest of them, but it adds a great counterpoint to whatever Freddie's singing. Um, and Killer Queens is a great, great example of that, don't you think? I, I do. I, I agree too. Yeah. Even like you're just saying, like, this makes me think of, uh, I wanted to shred and make fast. And Ember just, uh, I think it's an old Metallica interview where they're talking about, yeah, we can keep playing as fast and fast, as fast as we can, but there's always going to be someone faster. Yeah. Like, what can we do different to evolve? And, and yeah, just his, his sound, his tone too on this, on the song. This album too is great. Yeah. And even, I mean, shout out to, to my boy John Deacon too. He's just a guy who's, who's always just kind of there. I, and and background join me. I, I do play bass myself, so he's one of those guys that I do kind of one of my influences besides like Cliff Burton from Metallica, right? Um, and Getty Lee, but and John Deacon very much I guess sort of my kind of style, just just kind of nothing too flashy, but just just there and just just really keeps that that rhythm going and yeah. really cool play style, really nice jazz bass as well. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually excited that you're being a bassist. I'm glad to hear you say that because I know I find myself. I mean, I think I even I underrate him as a Queen fan because sometimes I'm finding while I do the show is every time I play, I'm like, I always kind of have to throw out there just so you remember. Maybe you can't hear him as much. He's not a very like loud in your face bassist. He's not like a Les Claypool or anything. He's not like thundering down that bass to like yeah, make it a, make your hurt. Not a flea, yeah. Not a flea, anything like that. But what he does is very melodic and very like he, he never is satisfied playing just like the the down the down part, not the, the bass, the chord, so to speak. He just he always has a little extra melody of his own that he throws in there. It's always moving. He's always doing something with it, um, but it's never too much. It always just adds those proper flourishes, right? Exactly when they're needed. It's a really intelligent style of playing. Might not be the flashiest, but I think think it goes overlooked by a lot of people. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because as a bass player, it makes me happy that you actually you see that like like I see it because I've started to see that more and more. Even after being a fan for 20 years, I reach my listen, especially if I get like the instrumentals. Sometimes I get that if you take that, even though it's 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 bad to take Freddie's vocals off. You don't want you don't take Freddie's vocals off, but when you do, yeah. you can sometimes hear some stuff underneath like, oh I didn't even hear that before. I didn't hear what he was doing before. That's awesome. Um but it adds such texture. Because that's what Queen is best at really they have the textures in those songs that they build up all over over on top of that like it's just track after track after track and there's just so much to listen to you can never really get bored if you're listening to things um but yeah that's that's awesome man so uh, i'm we're on the same page as far as that goes definitely so definitely yeah also well, too i mean also too i mean he's a guy too that uh a lot of finger style too which is i like to do i mean he does has played with a pick before but primarily like a nice little a finger finger plucker guy which i definitely appreciate i mean you get a different a different tone different sound with it too and you can kind of 
you listen close, you kind of tell sometimes it's a little harder to come in with the, the tracking and overlays right. and stuff. But a lot of times, too, you can hear that that more natural kind of plucking sound as opposed yeah. to just with the tacking of the pick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's a cool, different, cooler, cooler sound to it, in my opinion. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I will throw the one last thing, of course, is one of the things I always say also is that he's a great songwriter. You have a guy, all four mm-hmm. of them wrote great songs. He has some great hits. You're, you're another one back to dust. You've mentioned, I want to break free. My best friend, all John Deacon creations, definitely on the popular side of things, but that's again, what makes Queen great. You have the kind of mix of different genres. And that was what he held down the pop and a little bit of that Motown sound as well. He liked that sound to his, his base as well. Um, but that's awesome. Thanks, John. I appreciate you coming on. I really do appreciate you hanging out, being the first guest and uh, giving you your insight onto the band. Not only you get my insight, you get John Street, a bassist extraordinaire and musical a musical lo- lover of music of all kinds. Uh, it's great to have you on board. I really do appreciate it. Where can the folks find you, my friend? Uh, well, again, thank you very much. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Uh, just talking, talking, talking shop, talking music. Uh, but you can always find me over on Twitter at uh, my uh, my name, J-O-N underscore L-A-S-T-R-I-N-A. Uh, I also pop up every now and then on uh, the Montyverse over on YouTube with the great my great guy Monty doing some great stuff over there, and if you're a fan of other podcasts of sorts, uh, I've done some some work on the Fancasted Four podcast. It is the number one fancasted Fantastic Four podcast on the internet, presumably hosted <laughs> by the great Dan Bettenhausen and now the new host Jack Mayer. A lot of fun stuff over there, so check them all out. That is very true. Actually, I'll be a guest soon on that podcast. I'm recording one on Monday from now. So by the time you hear this, it might have already aired. I don't know. If it didn't, I'll be on it soon. If it has aired, I've already on it. Go check it out. But check Whoa. out as well. <laughs> but go check that out as well. Definitely. It's a, it's a fun time. I do like that podcast as well. So, all right, John, thanks a lot. We'll uh, we'll see you next time for definitely another one bites of dust and maybe something else beforehand. Uh, we'll see how it all goes. We'll Take see. Care, She's a killer queen. Well, there you have it, John Latrina. What a good dude, huh? Join him and myself on patreon.com slash pldprojects where we can talk more about Queen or movies or anything else you want to talk about. I want to join Daniel Ramirez, Brandon Buckingham, Brandy Parker, Jeff Alterman, John Latrina, Kelly W., and the rest of you couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much. Well, here we are, folks. Let's do it. Let's finally figure out which is the crown jewel of Killer Queen. As always, from least to best... The bottom of the list for me would be the Live Killers version. Again, I think it might be the mix more than anything else. And maybe I've heard it more than anything else. That could be always come into play. You never know. But for me, that's right at the bottom. Just above that, Live in Japan, the Queen of Adam Lambert version. A little more playfulness from Brian. I do appreciate that. Next up from that, we got the Rainbow 1974 version. Again, the shortest version that we have. They're barely doing any of it, so why would we put it anywhere besides that? Hammersmith 1975. Earl's Court, 1977, in those order, and very similar versions, of course. So that leads us to the top two, which is my crown jewel. Is it going to be the album version, or is it going to be the Rock Montreal version? I did go back and forth a little bit. I almost put Rock Montreal version on top, but because of the nature of the song, the preciseness of it, the vocals of it, the studio playfulness of it, well, it is a tough song to duplicate live. The band does a great job at it. However... When it comes down to is if I'm going to pick one of these songs to represent Killer Queen, it's going to be the album version. It's just the 
crown jewel version. It's the best version that we can have. That's what's going to go on my playlist. I don't think it's very surprising when you consider that's the only full version of the song we have. So that's where we are. So finally, what do I rank it? What rating do I give it? And does it slide into my top 10? Well, it comes close. I know it might be uh, surprising to some, but it will not slip into my top 10. I do give it a 9.5. However, at number 10 is the Fairy Feller's Masterstroke, which is also a 9.5. And I do prefer the Fairy Feller's Masterstroke a little bit more. That's personal preference, though. Maybe it's the fantasy lyrics, things of that nature. Um, it is a great track. It's definitely in my top 20 at this point, um, but it will not crack my top 10. 9.5, though, not too shabby. So there you have it, folks. Thanks for sticking with me through this slightly longer version. We had a guest that does push the time out a little bit. Hopefully you enjoyed that time uh, with me. Stay tuned. Next week, we have the first Roger Taylor written and sung version track on the Sheer Heart Attack album. Tenement Funster, one of my favorite uh, loose rock and roll tracks that Queen has done. Very underrated, I think. I can't wait to get into that one with you. But until next time, of course... If this is your first time, hit that like, hit that subscribe, leave a comment, let me know what you think. Uh, do the same on YouTube. If you're on YouTube watching this, leave a like, leave a comment. I'm trying to get this out there. I want to get these subscribers up on both podcasts and on YouTube. We're doing our best here to create, give you some good content, some fun content. Of course, we got two mediocre white dudes on film, myself and PJ going through franchise films. And also we got class action where myself, Maddie Gunner and Richard Eric Jarvey take two things and put them up against each other in a battle to the death. And eventually Maddie Gunner and I are going to create another Star Wars podcast. When we used to do, uh, we do love talking Star Wars here. So let me know what you guys think. And if you want to reach out, of course, patreon.com slash projects, or you can find me on Twitter at Paul underscore Denuzio or on Hive at PLD. And go to TeePublic. you find the PLD Project store. You can get shirts of all your favorite shows. Until next time, everybody, God save the queen. Keep on rocking. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.